0: Welcome in. Before we get rolling, I want to tell you about the awesome sponsors that are keeping this free for you guys. First on the list, we have Pacific Custom Calls. If you're looking for a waterfowl call at all—ducks, geese, cranes, whatever you're after—Pacific uh, Calls have got it. I personally run the uh, 509 Goose Call. Been doing it for a couple of years, and I love it. Haven't had any issues with it yet. Uh, the guys over there are awesome. So if you're looking for a new call, you can find them at PacificCustomCalls.com. Uh, search them up find what you need if they don't have it they will soon next we have duckseason.com this is a website where you can go on uh, put in your location where you're at what you hunt what you go after and you can link up with people from across the country and see what they go after where they're at and you guys can trade hunts Uh, it's an awesome deal if you uh, don't have the money to do a guided hunt or you don't want to have a guide and you just kind of want to do somewhat freelance this is a uh great way to do it. So get on there, get signed up. Just takes a couple seconds to uh, get your info in there and you're uh, on the list and people can search through your state and find you and it's a great thing. I'm on it. Look for me there. Maybe we can trade a hunt someday. Now we have Easy Deeks decoy rigging systems, decoy weight systems. They do Texas rigs, timber rigs, whatever you're looking for for your floating uh, decoys or decoy bags or anything like that. They got it there. Uh, Check them out. A lot of cool stuff on there. Their website is The letter's E-Z-D-E-K-E-S dot com. Um, A lot of cool things on there. Go check them out. Now we got Waylon Johnson and his guide service. He's down in the San Antonio area. He's chasing all sorts of ducks and geese down there along with some fishing. Uh, If you're down in the area looking for uh, some birds or for some fishing, give him a call. His number is 361-494-7868. Now for your decoy needs, you should go check out Big Al's Decoys uh silhouettes of about any word you can think of he's got on there uh swans ducks geese pigeons turkeys and uh possibly some more cool things in the future big things so uh if you're looking for some decoys go check them all out they got bags and everything on the site uh it's big bigalsdecoys.com, b-i-g-a-l-s-d-e-c-o-y-s.com and on to uh a custom lanyard site, if you're looking to uh, get a new lanyard, hang your calls on, looking for something to get customized, uh, Landon does a great job, he's at uh, Dark Darkwater Customs, you can find him on Instagram and put an order through him that way, at dark underscore water underscore customs, get on there, check it out, he does some awesome work, uh, not just lanyards, he does haulers too, so uh, get after it, go get him, go get something cool from him. Now we've got Steady Wing Outfitters, that's Mikey Soberano over in Northeast Kansas. He specializes in waterfowl, turkey, deer. I know for waterfowl season coming up, he's uh, ready and raring to go. So if you're looking for a hunt over in that area, give him a call. His number is 785-410-2304. And last but not least, we have Highline Retrievers. That's my dog training business up here in Northeast Montana. Uh, If you're looking to get your dogs trained, if you're looking for advice, uh, whatever you need, I'm always available. I'm always uh, willing to help out. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, all the places. And then if you need to get a hold of me, uh, my number is 406-783-7083. Thanks a lot. Thanks to all of our sponsors. And enjoy the show. Well, shotguns singing, a dog down in the old and then he got three and looked back grinning. I fumbled around and I tried to
1: reload
0: the country. Alright, welcome into the Woods and Water Podcast. This is Garrett. This week we have Drew on again. Um, this week we're going to be talking about his Minnesota deer season and kind of the differences between Minnesota and South Dakota and the hardwoods and the plains and everything like that. So... You kind of introduced yourself last time. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it. So, you were successful in South Dakota. Were you successful in Minnesota this year?
1: Uh, As far as goals go, no, but I did harvest a deer. I'm somebody where pick a goal, remember the goal, and go achieve the goal. And... South Dakota for me was more just about learning, learning how to hunt the plains, learning how it's different from hardwoods to the plains. The biggest thing I really learned is that with the plains deer, to me, it almost seemed a little bit easier than the hardwoods. Um, and everyone's going to have a different, you know idea idea if they agree or not but for me it really was especially where i hunt in the big woods versus the plains the plains the, the deer they have to be in this section of woods if they're going to be there the big woods they could go where we're hunting but seven miles by five miles with no interconnecting roads so it's 35 square miles of just big woods that the deer can go in very little crop you know a lot of swamp and a lot of area where they can really really run wild but with that it produces on the flip side, a lot of really big deer, they just don't know how to hide.
0: And bear so, and wolves.
1: And bear and wolves. Uh, There's other stuff out there that I probably have no idea. There's mountain lion for sure. Seems That's great. everywhere, though. I don't, I don't care what the DNR page says. There's mountain lion everywhere.
0: Well, they can't say no because you can't see them. It's so thick down there.
1: No, dude, we see them, especially during the la- the lambing season when the ewes are throwing their lambs.
0: Yeah, they're out there. So let's start with, <clears throat> for the people that haven't been in the big woods, there's a lot of Western people on this show. What, like you said, there's a lot of woods, so they could be anywhere, but what's some of the differences, like what's hard, what makes it hard and what makes it easier? I guess let's go like that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a really really high stem count. So, for me to scout big woods, you almost have to be in the area you want to be to really really know like, hey, you have the deer moving through here? You ha- you have to like walk on the trail. You have to put the camera up and capture the deer that you want to see. It's not as easy as driving around and you know looking out the window of your pickup, you know seeing a quarter mile, half mile, even multiple you know like three four miles away and seen a deer, you have to be in the woods with that deer to really see them. Really where you can kind of get a really good inventory though, is going to be during that velvet season when they're carrying um, their antlers, they're all full of blood, they're tender, they're, they're out in the open more, but once they go hard antler, especially the larger deer, they're, they're, they don't really want to be in the open as much. They really want to be in that heavy stem cover because they can. They like being in that swamp because it's thick, there's a lot of food there's always water, you know, and they just, we've shot deer out there and their antlers are so dark because they don't really have, they're not, they're not getting all that uh, sunlight on them, right? The sun, the sun's not bleaching them and they can just, they, they really look like big oak trees, you know? So mm. as far as the differences go and what it's like is, yeah, once they go a hard antler, each buck kind of goes into their own little territory. They still intermingle, but they're they're, they're not in the open if they don't have to. So what me and my dad are really doing to combat that is we're doing a lot of internal food plots in these big woods. So uh, I'm blessed to have a father who owns 160 acres and who is all about deer, who's all about trying to make deer hunting better and really kind of experiment and do different things. So him and I, we, enrolled the land into some different uh, government programs that allow us to plan food plots, but also to be funded by the government to do that. So we have in total probably around four acres of food plots, but they're all diced up into quarter acre, half acre, three quarter acre um, segments. So what we started going into is we were going into those areas where they're really, really high stem cover that we have notoriously shot large deer and um we're going through and where we're seeing oak trees that are young but they're you know within three inches of each other we're cutting one tree out we're going into different areas where especially like the ash right now there's a lot of ash trees that are dying if we're seeing clusters of ash trees we're taking those ash trees out because they're dying because of an ash borer bug Um, and we're creating openings like that and then we're strategically based off of how the contracts laid out too we're going in and we're opening up large clear cuts of uh, like brush, stuff like that. Um, we're taking buckwheat, which is a type of kind of grass. It's a grain. And we're, we're seeding buckwheat into it, which kind of it does is it shoots it up, creates kind of like a canopy, real thick. And then uh, once it comes time to plant food plots, we are seeding in you know different brassicas. We've had a lot of success with turnip, radish, kale, rape. Um there's another one that we were using too that I really liked. It, oh, oh snow pea. We've been putting snow pea in there. Um basically what you do is then is you go through, spray it with uh 240 and glyphosate, smash it down, really make sure you get that good seed to soil contact. We don't have a um Packer Max yet, so we've just been driving it over multiple times with either the tractor or with our four Um, but yeah, seeding it down spraying it i learned this year that i thought if you spray the seed with like glyphosate it would kill the seed but actually no it for the most part it, it doesn't really hurt the seed at all you know it's just killing the stuff on top and uh when we drive over that uh that buckwheat or even even in some places we had really high um blue stem grass when you when you smash it down like that and the seed is underneath of it it creates kind of like a little greenhouse especially with the dying um and yeah, it allows that seed to kind of hold the moisture in the ground, pop back up. And uh, we had some really good crop. I don't know, man, we had turnips. We had turnips, turnips. What, maybe we can post some photos. I got some photos of like just some huge, just ginormous like turnips that are bigger than my head. We um, yeah, just really trying to um, set ourselves up for success and really being able to pinpoint, hey, this, this food plot is set up for this deer you know, we're only hunting in this location and being able to do a lot with the land and not really have to, you know, worry about if somebody else saying no, because this is something that ultimately we own, you know, in comparative to the conversation we had about Uncle Randy's where, hey, that's Uncle Randy's property. You know, he does his own farming operation. So we're going to keep it. We're just going to leave it Uncle Randy's when we want to play. We're going to play over on my dad's. But uh, what we did was, is we purposely planted different, Plantings different types of um, crop, and we kind of just did very much like a yield trial would be. So if you ever drive by like an old Mycogen seeds, um, Syngenta, Dow, you know, um, whatever whatever seed company that you have, you'll see how they will plant different varieties in rows, and they'll have the placard that says, "Hey, if this is this corn, this is this sun, this is this soybean, this is this sunflower," right? And you're gonna see all these different types. And that's what we replicated we replicated that to really see hey what what grows best here um what does best with the chemical that we put down what does best with just you know the loamy soil we have with mixing it in with a lot of weed pressure because especially when you're turning ground for the first time you're going to have weeds and really no matter what you do even after you do that spraying because you, you can't spray the crop that the deer are going to eat right you need to you know, just kind of let it happen and really hope that your weed control that you laid down before is going to do its due diligence and, you know, shade that out. Uh, yeah, doing that was really cool. And ultimately I'm going to say that even though the brassicas looked awesome, even though that the, uh, the different, all the different things that we did, um, we had a lot of success. We had a lot of failures in it, but the thing that the deer liked the most, at least this was this year was they loved that winter rye. It didn't matter what we did. Um, A lot of times what we do is if we had bare spots where maybe seed didn't generate, we would throw winter rye down right before a big rain, let the rain pound it into the soil. And uh, yeah, just having that bright green grass, man, they hit that rye hard. They really hit that rye hard. And it's like the easiest thing to plant too. So when in doubt, if you want to plant a food plot, especially in the north, you don't know what to do, till it up, throw winter rye down before a really hard rainstorm, let that rain pound it in and deer are going to go to it. We still have deer out digging in that field and eating that winter rye. They're 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 eating the brassica, they're eating the turnip, but man, they love that winter rye. But, uh, asides of that too, what we purposely did was, is again, we want to have deer in front of our stand, right? We want to have deer where we can kind of know where they're going and not just have the big woods to run, not just run the swamp. So we rented a backhoe, we dug in, uh, three different wildlife ponds. So What that looks like is we found areas where the water table was really low, um, cut into the ground, and naturally water just goes and pools in there. And uh, with us ripping up a lot of that ground around that water hole, obviously you have the the potential for erosion, right? Especially when you're sloping it, so that way the water wants to naturally go there as well to kind of keep it self-sustaining. So we, we planted a lot of rape and kale in those areas, and we had a lot of success with that coming up, and um, we had a lot of deer that really, really enjoyed, you know, going to the water, eating that rape, eating that kale. It's a really nice green, um, especially, you know, prior to October 15th, so it'd be a great thing that I'm going to definitely utilize more for bow next year is hunt around those water holes when it's hot, when they have that nice lettucey y um, green to eat off of, and Ultimately, what we did is we tried to strategically place the food plots in the water holes. That way, the deer, we could kind of define movement. So you could kind of think of, you know, we created a highway system in our head that we figured the deer naturally used. And we created pit, pit stops. So the closest, so you can think of the bedding is the center, right? This is where we're thinking, this is where the all the big deer are sitting. Um, we have around 20 acres of just hard willow super heavy stem count, hard to get into, really hard to walk. And there's really no way you can sneak into it, hang a stand or have a blind really in there because it's so thick. So the trails leading out of those, the first pit stops we made was the water. Because um, ultimately there's not a lot, we, we, we want to have them attract but we don't want to feel like there's a lot of pressure. And what we found is the food is where they figure the most pressure is going to be. So bedding area, come out, and then we have uh, that water, and then from that water branched out, that's where our food plots are. So we created different stand locations um, based off of kind of that highway, so to speak, that we outlined for them. And uh, I, I didn't really, we drew it out on paper, we got some wise counsel, and you know I was kind of skeptical, but it really did define movement for us of how the deer were moving out and eventually getting to the different water holes and the different, um, food plots. So definitely something we're going to continue to do to try to target the big deer when they can really go anywhere they want and be hidden, but to kind of, you know, put different attractives, attractants out there, you know, and also it supports other wildlife too. We've got all kinds of photos of owls, um, eat, drinking in the water holes, foxes, drinking in the water holes, uh, the water holes it's crazy. We had all kinds of bear that were, drinking out of the water holes too this summer. So it's pretty cool. All
0: right. I've got some questions now. First one, Mm -hmm. what does the government want out of you guys for funding these food plots and stuff you're doing? Like they just wanting data on what's actually working there or what's, what's their side of it?
1: Yeah. So what it is, is they, they are wildlife food plots. So really it's to support wild game. It's to support deer. It's to support the different birds. Um, so they really just, don't want it's, anything it's, in return. They
0: just want you guys to make more habitat. They're paying you to make habitat make more rather habitat, than make farm more it food. or whatever or letting it it's, just be an overgrown mess.
1: Exactly. And uh, one of the plots that we planted, this isn't so much for deer, but with the contract, we had to have a pollinator plot. So we have a field of like flowers in um, these different types of grasses that, you know, the dragonflies, the bees, you know, any other type of pollinator. They're really, really going to be attracted to to really support, you know, pollinator wildlife. Um, Along with that as well, you're going to get the natural milkweed. You're going to, it allows some of those other plants to grow. So butterflies are going to be, you know, impacted in a positive way. Bees, dragonflies, all kinds of stuff. So it's just more or less, hey, create, like you said, food habitat for not just deer, but for all animals.
0: Okay. How big are your guys' water holes that you're building?
1: Yeah. They're only about probably four or 500 gallons. I mean, what we did was is we literally went to a low spot where we knew it naturally holds water or when we would get like heavy rainstorms where all the water would pool. That's where we went. And, um, we cut it open and, uh, yeah, I bet the biggest one holds maybe 500 gallons. And then on the very North side of my dad's property, it's actually pretty high up. So what we did was we cut, a uh i think it's ibc or ubc tote those big white totes in half Mm -hmm. um we got a food grade one um i can't remember what was in it but uh we took it put a bunch of it down just open it scrubbed it down power washed it out cleaned it all out and we actually dug that into the ground um so that's one that we'll drive out there with the old pickup and we'll actually fill it throughout the summer and then when we do get rains it does naturally slope so it does collect in there but yeah so let's go out there and we'll fill it um That's kind of what we did to put water somewhere where water isn't naturally to kind of draw the deer out of the big woods to maybe want to go to an area that they normally don't go to drink. But once it's there, it's consistent. You know, it it can become an area where, hey, they might want to hang out there because there's that nice water up there.
0: I gotcha. So, like when I was in college or whatever, and I went out and helped you guys build stands, that was before you guys started doing all this type of stuff, right? Like you were just sort of building stands on places you thought deer might run. And then you just sat there and hoped.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: That sounds miserable. I never did. Yeah, hunt it, but really... that, that sounds like you never know what you're going to see and uh-huh. when, where they're going to be coming from or anything.
1: No. And really what we're trying to do is, is the, we win, the deer win, right? Ultimately, we're, me and my dad, we're both after a single deer every year. We're not just trying to go out there and just totally decimate the population, but we're trying to make great habitat for not only big bucks, but for does, fawns, you know, there's so, especially when you start to do these different things to your land, it's crazy the amount of other wildlife that shows up and that benefits from it as well. Uh, but yeah, so instead of like, Garrett, your point, it's just a huge field. Or it's just a huge section of woods we just go through and cut with chainsaws and hope the deer run down these paths. But this is more of saying, hey, let's define like natural movement and then we'll set our stand locations based off of how we're getting data from the camera, how the deer are reacting to it, you know, what makes sense for the wind and what we're seeing from the cameras, so.
0: So you weren't successful in getting one then in Minnesota this year? (laughs) Did your dad get one? No. Yeah,
1: so uh, he, we, me and my dad were both after the same exact buck. Um, we have three bucks on the land that I would say are shooters. Um, the one that we want to shoot, we call him Big Papa. He's a big 14-point um, Got split route times. So he's a mainframe 6 by 6 but split route times makes him a 14. So... <clears throat> He was very much a deer where he would come out at the last 15 minutes if he was going to daylight. And if he didn't daylight, it was really around that hour after legal shooting time. And my dad had three close encounters with him where, you know, we created these food plots. And he really liked this one waterhole and he really liked this one brassica. And Jason, too, both of this brassica and this waterhole was a large cornfield. And what we did is we pinpointed that he was actually laying in this cornfield every day. So when the wind was right, we were going down and we were sitting in this one stand trying to get him to come out. And uh, I never did see him. My dad never saw him during the day. But there was three times, though, where my dad actually had left the stand. And 30 minutes later, he would show up on the cell cam, like directly in front of, of that stand. Right. And what it was is you could see him clear as day coming out of the corn, eating in that brassica plot going down the uh the field hitting the water and then i don't know where he was going after that but uh yeah i was really 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 um confident for rifle because this was from july all the way until the first week of november we were getting consistent pictures of him at night him sitting in his corn him hitting this brassica plot i'm like okay like this is bound to happen he's going to be bumping a doe eventually we're going to get a crack at him with either a rifle or a muzzleloader. And the day before rifle season opened, we had a photo of him um, drinking out of the r one water bowl. So I was super confident going into it. Rifle season happened. I haven't seen a picture since. So I've asked the neighbors. um, Obviously the neighbors aren't going to tell you everything, but I've asked neighbors, I've asked other people, you know, like, Hey, you know, you guys shoot anything cool. And a couple of them, I know pretty well I've asked if they've seen this deer and, Every person I've asked, nobody even knows this deer exists. Um, but I haven't found anybody that has said that, yeah, you know, we shot it or we had seen it or anything. As far as I'm concerned, and what I've had conversations with other people is they don't even know it exists. So I don't know where this
0: deer went. Um, is there any public like can somebody been, random have just come in and got him?
1: Yeah, there, there is on the very, very. So it's about three miles away. Mm-hmm. There is a, a huge chunk of public.
0: That's kind of part
1: of this five acres by seven acres where there's really no roads. Um, there is a huge section of public. So there's a pretty good chance you got on like a good doe or not. I shouldn't say a pretty good chance. There is a chance that he got on a doe. He ran that way, you know, and he got shot by someone in public. And there's a pretty good chance too, especially Minnesota. A lot of these people, they don't live out here. You know, there's, they all live somewhere else. And they just have, you know, 80 acres or 200 acres of, land that got passed down so maybe they're from wisconsin they're driving in they could have shot him brought him back home and i've actually never met this person so i don't know so um yeah i don't know i pray that he's alive Uh, i'm I'm still getting camera data I, i check every night check every day two of the bucks that we want to shoot we call the one the king he's a big uh mainframe 10 he's still alive and then there is a another big mainframe 10 which I would kind of call him right now. You kind of call him like nameless. Doesn't really have a name, but he's not what we would call the king buck. Uh, so they're both still alive, and uh, it just kind of shows like, it it attests to how well these deer can hunt in these big or hide in these big woods. Every single, every single property that is within this five to seven mile cut, every single one of them gets hunted. And Every single one of them gets hunted hard. You know, you'll have ten, you know, people. On a hundred acres, you know, and they'll be they'll be doubling up on stands. You'll have deer drives. This area gets hunted very hard, but to show that three or two of the three big deer that we really want to shoot are still alive, it's just like dang! Like they're definitely better at hiding than what we probably realized. And that's something that is a testament to you know big woods versus the uh, the plains deer.
0: They don't get big by being dumb.
1: No, and yeah. The again, I'm not, I'm not the best at judging how big deer are, but uh, I bet that big fourteen, I bet he's probably 150 inches. Um, the king, I bet he's probably in that 140-130 range, and then the uh, nameless fuck. he's probably in that 120-125 ish range. So, all nice deer, um, all deer, I would be happy to put my tag on.
0: Was your dad archery hunting, or was he just rifle?
1: Uh, he was archery too. So when we were getting every, every opportunity that, uh, or all these close encounters that my dad was having was during archery season. So
0: he didn't get one though. Mm -hmm. He didn't end up with one either.
1: So we both did shoot does. Um, again, big woods, a lot of deer. We have a lot of deer. So we had a lot of opportunity at different deer, um, little bucks, a lot of does and, what I wanted to do was I wanted to, you know, get my meat deer. So I shot a deer, um, with a, I shot a doe with a bow. My dad shot a doe with a bow. And then, uh, yeah. Then after that, we were just trying to shoot those, those, that one buck. So
0: So what, what's your plan there for the rest of winter then, or going into spring? Do you guys have one or just more plots or what are you guys going to do?
1: <clears throat> yeah. So right now this is kind of a time when like, you know, we, we purposely planted these, these food plots not only for for hunting season but also for the winter season, right? So these this brassica, um, these turnips and these radishes, um, rutabag, as you could even call them too. This is what they are eating now this winter. So we still have all kinds of deer going through um, and eating in these plots. And then uh, what we're really what I what my goal is after supporting the deer population is to try to get those shin antlers so I can know like you know if I do see you know, an antler with seven points on it, I know what's that buck, right? Uh, I'm getting getting the king and I'm getting nameless. I get them every night um, eating in this one brassica plot. So, you know, the goal for me is to just try to get those shed antlers and then, uh, you know, actually get my hands on them, really get to see them, get to hold them. And then uh, hopefully with having that winter rye on the property, that's going to be the first thing um, in the spring that's going to green up. So hopefully those deer are going to stay on the properties and, you know, want to hit that winter ride. They're going to be around for us to watch them grow back up and we're doing the different plots, all that as well, and just kind of start getting more and more data if they're there to, um, you know, figure out how can we kill them in uh, our true season. So if, uh, depending on what the cameras say, um, you know, the goal is to just keep the deer on there, keep that food there. You know, support them however we can. Keep the pressure away from them, and hopefully, in the year we do this episode again, and uh, I kill the king, and my dad kills nameless.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's archery season look like there? When does it open? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, It's going to open September. I want to say September first, but maybe it's the fifteenth. But yeah, it's early. I think it's the fifteenth. It's early September, um, and then it goes until. December thirty first, so it just closed. Okay. Yep. So it goes through the end of the year.
0: How far of a drive is it from you, like from Fargo now? Since you're not there,
1: it's hour and a half to my dad's property. It's an hour and twenty to Randy's. Yep. So I'm right in the middle of both.
0: <sighs> Must be nice. Hey, membership
1: has its perks, like they say. But then <laughs> again, look at you. You're getting twenty dollar over the counter elk tags. So, yeah. Crime your river.
0: <laughs> still got one with it though right uh, so as far as when are you thinking you, like I'm not used to the small properties and stuff like you guys are so I would be afraid I guess it doesn't matter so much in the spring if you can go shed hunting and pushing them out of there because nobody's going to shoot them and they'll probably come back it's going to be totally different but are you guys going to wait until like midsummer to start looking or as soon as you start seeing them drop antlers are you going to be in there
1: Soon as as soon as we start seeing drop antlers, we're gonna well what we'll do is we'll let them drop. And then uh kind of that that spring, kind of like that early March, mid-March, that's when we'll really start looking. Again, it's such heavy stem count in the in the big woods that especially where we are, that man, like as soon as they as soon as the foliage starts to come, it's so hard to even walk through it's so hard to see. And to kind of have that time where you lose the snow, but the stem count is still thinned out a little bit more without foliage, that's the time we need to go. Because otherwise, once it greens up, good luck. You know, you're not going to find them. You know, you will you will find them, I should say, but your chances dwindle, especially if the deer shed it in like an area that was maybe a little bit thicker, right? Um, and we do use it. We, we have Jack and we have Toby. So those are two dogs that can find shed antlers and they have found shed antlers for us. Um, so we'll utilize them as well, but.
0: So you guys just traipsing through the woods or, because like here we'll go to like field edges or, uh, fence lines, or like, if you know, like a field that deer hung out in all winter or whatever, like it was bad harvest, things like that. We'll focus on that. Do you guys just randomly walk through the woods and hope you stumble across one?
1: No. So, uh, just like regular hunting, especially with small properties, right? Big properties It's harder to do this with, um, sorry, not big properties, but like large land masses like plains deer, you know, they have so much area that they might run around where these other deer and these, on our small properties, right. We only have so much that we can walk. So we're going to use data. So we're going to use, okay, we're going to put our cameras up still throughout this winter, figure out where is, you know, the King eating at. And then that's where I'm going to go look. I'm going to go look in the bedding areas adjacent to it. I'm going to go look, you know, in the food, you know. This this Minnesota you can't set antler traps, Um, so we're we're not going to set an antler trap for any of the deer. But we can look of okay, what is the high stem count that the deer would have to walk through as he's leaving the bedding area to come to this food source? You know where could his antlers get caught up? Stuff like that. So I'm somebody where I like to use data. You know we have the data available, especially for putting cell cams out on the Minnesota property. So use it, figure out where they're going, and then just try to also set yourself up to get data on maybe where's this buck bedding where is this deer doing this at so there there's one deer uh i don't know what i should and again i name them because that's just easy for me to kind of remember what deer i'm talking about i'm not somebody who works like every deer needs to have a name but we have one deer that i got to i don't know like i like to say i got to know him quite a bit uh it's this deer i call him the pronghorn buck but gosh he looks weird his uh so normally the pedicles are set on the top of their head, right? And then they grow out and up. This one deer, his pedicle is actually set above his eye. So it's like he's got one that's set normal, the other one that's set like on his forehead. And it's like it grows straight out and it curves in front of his face. So he is uh, right now a two-point, or he's a four-point buck. He I call him the pronghorn because his antlers actually curl backwards like a pronghorn mm. does. So I'm really hoping outside of the the three bigger deer that i listed earlier that's the deer i really want to get his antlers too because he's a year and a half old right now but that might be a pretty cool two and a half year old buck to shoot
0: yeah <laughs> have you uh, seen pictures of him is he still alive
1: yeah he's still alive he he is the deer with the most presence on our property right now um i've passed him multiple times he was like when i would go hunt um it's kind of like me and my dad. We, I kind of had my little area. He had his little area, right? I I set my dad more up to try to shoot the 14. Um, so he was more over there. I kind of sat uh, on a different part of the property where we have a lot of evergreen. And uh, it was like guaranteed. I knew that this little pronghorn buck was going to come out. Um, I don't know how many times I saw him during bow. And then uh, I saw them every single time I hunted back in the evergreens during rifle. I saw him. He'd come out. He would hit the food plot. He would go around. He'd hit the water, and then he'd circle back to the bedding area. He was like the one deer that didn't follow. He followed it backwards. Or most deer were coming out, hitting the water, going to the food, then going back in. He would do it—the loop, the backside.
0: Send me a picture of him. I want to see that one. That sounds cool.
1: Yeah, I will. I think I did actually. Nah. He's—he's a weird-looking deer, man. I'll send you on Snapchat. That seems to send it quicker. Okay. <clears throat> okay, here's him next to and I'll send you the big ten right now. Or sorry, this is the this is the king buck.
0: Oh that and is and then goofy. this is
1: nameless. So yeah, from top to bottom you have the pronghorn buck. Secondary you have the king, and then the bottom one is nameless. Okay.
0: Where's that fourteen point one? That thing is goofy looking.
1: I know. But he, see how his pedicles like set above his eye?
0: Yeah. On the left side That's there. It's the weirdest thing ever. I wonder if he got hit or something. Like hit by a car.
1: I know. I was I was talking to my dad. I was like, I wonder if he was, you know, messing around and he got cracked by a huge buck and it just broke his skull or something. <laughs> it looks like it's just dangling, doesn't it? Yeah. But all the photos I have, here's the here's the fourteen right there so that was the one we were really trying to get
0: oh yeah that's a big deer yeah that's exciting just more points more points more points
1: yeah that one especially when you zoom in it's like oh there's more
0: (laughs) it's cool that's cool not a single one of these are daytime though
1: no they're not so we do have the king of the daytime we have nameless in the daytime 14 we never got in the daytime Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure Tom so my brother-in-law he did see Nameless chasing a doe uh, but it was one of those things where it's like it happened too quick right the deer was running big woods they went through the cut he didn't get a shot
0: I gotcha and with it being so thick there some of those places it is like a second you see them then they're gone if you're not looking in the right spot at the right time never even know they were there
1: so, this buck right here, uh, main frame eight, not a bad deer. I could have shot him, but I opted to wait.
0: Yeah. Nice you. deer,
1: though, still. I wish I would have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you are full on saddle hunting now. Do you guys have any stands just hanging around, or do you and your dad both just saddle hunt, or what?
1: So, my dad, I, I like to saddle hunt because. I really like even though the saddle hunting isn't saddle hunting is more for setting up, taking down every single day. But I really like it cause it allows me to really pivot around the tree. And, um, I'm a really lengthy person. Um, I'm not a very large person though either. So for me to kind of pivot and to kind of slide and I can bounce pretty well, um, especially with how young I am, I like to use it, but, uh, to say I'm going to saddle hunt forever, uh, no, but what I do is for the most part where I'm, where I'm setting up, uh, I'm just setting up a platform, you know, and then, uh, when I go there, I got my sticks up there. I got my platform set and I'm just gonna climb up it and I'm going to tether to it. and I'm going to go, um, where most people, they would, you know, do a hang set. Just what I prefer kind of backwards thinking for most people, they'd rather have a nice hanging set. Um, that's what my dad likes. My dad likes to have a, you know, like a normal, not, not a platform for a saddle, but, you know, uh, set hung so that way he can, you know, sit down and, uh, shoot. So I gotcha. Yeah, we do it. We still have those box blinds that you were referring to, too. Um, we try not to, before, you know, our ideology was, Hey, the more stands, the better. But, you know, I kind of said this in an earlier podcast too, of sometimes less is more, right? We really want to make our human presence feel as little as possible. So that's why I do like kind of doing those, those, uh, platforms, you know, those other clip on stands and it just looks less, you know, it's not as intrusive. Ultimately, do we see big gear when we sit in the box blinds? We do, but I also don't want to always rely on a box blind though. So,
0: so all the ones I helped with, are they still standing up or do you tear them down?
1: Yeah. Uh, the one, the one is for sure. Another one they turned into a chicken coop,
0: (laughs) the one right by the house.
1: uh, Yeah. They, they pulled it up with the tractor. Turned into a chicken coop, and then there's another one that we put up that it's it's not there anymore. No, nope. we took it down.
0: All that work, all that sweat, that was miserable. I know. I know. It was hot that day.
1: It was sucked, but I mean, hey, we were kids.
0: Yeah, that was back around. before you lost all your weight too. So you were sweating just as much as me.
1: I know. <laughs> a little chubber.
0: <laughs> so. So you guys got one or two box blinds out still that like Tom and them sit in or how does Tom hunt?
1: Uh, we got one, two, three. We got five, five or six. Holy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot.
0: But for 160 acres it is.
1: Mm-hmm. I know. But the thing is, we don't. Hunt, I don't hunt a lot of them though. Because like some of them that we set up, like I just don't hunt them anymore because I would rather – you know, do something different or based off of how we set up the water holes and the food plots, you know, to me, it just, I I don't see the data over there. I don't see the deer moving as well to say they don't, I would say it's ignorant, especially during the rut. But, um, yeah, before we were kind of just aimlessly putting them up. Right. But now it's kind of like, no, to me, it doesn't make sense to sit in them. So I I just haven't been.
0: Yeah. Like I said, you guys are just putting up a bunch of blinds, then sitting there hoping something would come running by, which is what... From what I've heard and seen, a lot of Minnesota big woods hunting is is you just find a spot and sit and hope something goes sit. screaming by you for short enough time that you can get a shot.
1: Yeah. See, a lot of what we did. Uh, if, if anybody's looking to, if if you have the opportunity to manipulate land or to, you know to help the land out in any way, especially for deer hunting, check out Jeff Sturgis. He's somebody where you know he can he'll break down of how you can define movement, how you can plant not only food plots, but plant stem cover, plant different types of, you know, browse for deer. It's just different things like that to manipulate the land. So that way you can get in cleanly. The deer, you know, feel secluded. They have the bedding area. They have that food. They have that water. Um, How you can position the water. So that way it's not the same pressure as a field. Um, I found that the deer are a lot more lackadaisical around the water than they are the food plot. So to put a water hole in the middle of a food plot, it puts the, the, the water hole at the same amount of pressure as the food. You know, if, if you have a pretty high stem count area and you can slip a, you know, a water hole in there, the deer aren't going to feel as pressured. And it gives you another opportunity to hunt, you know, maybe somewhere, or maybe draw a deer in that would normally want to walk a pretty high stem uh, count area to give you a shot, to give you an area for the deer to stop really no different than, you know, what a mock scrape is or, or hunting a scrape is just something, some type of attractant outside of the rut to make a deer stop, do something in order for you to get a shot before it continues to go on.
0: How long ago did you guys start like putting in the water holes and stuff?
1: Yeah. So this is all this year. Um, so they figured out real quick then. Yeah. Yeah. And it was to say like we define movement. It was, was, it truly did. The one area that these evergreen trees that I was referring to where I saw the pronghorn book. this was an area where we didn't really see deer. It's like during the rut, it's like all of a sudden you would see just a deer go busting through, right? Um, same with uh, where the 14 point was always living. This was kind of an area where during the rut, all of a sudden you would see just a deer busting through chasing a doe, just busting it out in the open, right? So that's like, okay, well, right now it's just CRP. You know, it's not the hardwood It's next to the hardwoods. So it's like, this is kind of an area where we could shoot with rifle. This is kind of an area where we could, you know, put a cell camera up and not just get a small little corridor. We can get an ample amount of area. And plus it worked for us to, um, put those sections of land in those contracts because it wasn't just trees and we wouldn't have to cut a ton of trees down in order to get the funding for it. So, um, yeah, some areas that we really didn't see deer out in, um, that's where the deer go every day now they're going out there they're eating that brassica they're going out there they're eating drinking those water holes and stuff like that
0: so which one do you like better the south dakota stuff or the minnesota stuff
1: you know i would say it's equal right now it really is because it's two different types of hunting you know and there's the there's the um gratification i get from getting to go and hunt with my grandpa and there's the gratification of getting to go and you know, thoughtfully think through this stuff with my dad and to do this, spend this time with my dad and, uh, you know, kind of waste away our hours on uh, doing something we both love and we can be thoughtful about. And it kind of gives us a little mission for his land too. And to really kind of have that uh, environmentalist mindset of, hey, how can we really do the best to support not only deer, but other animals as well?
0: And that's kind of building it for the future too eventually if you have kids then you can bring your kids out there and so on and so forth
1: yeah there's the there's a paper company that used to be open out i'm not sure what town it was in but it was a toilet paper company and they had salesmen that would go out and they would go to these sections of land and they would sell these trees these, these toilet paper trees to the different uh dairy farmers and ranchers and um, not a lot. There's not a lot of crop out there, but there is some crop. So they would try to sell to different farmers. And my grandpa, he more or less, he drank the juice and I bet he's got, I don't know, two, three thousand of these hybrid popple trees and uh, they planted them. And two years after that, my grandpa bought all these trees with the intention of selling them back to paper company, that paper company closed down And uh, I don't know if it closed down and went overseas or if it just closed down and they lost the market or what it was, but we have huge, huge sections of technically hardwood, but they're these hybrid popple trees that um, the like nice oaks, other like elm trees got cut out. All these trees that really don't provide food, don't provide. You know, really other thing, anything other than, you know, nesting for birds, for like the grouse and like the robins and all that, which an oak tree can provide, um, they're just there now. So that's kind of the next big project is going through and taking those out, you know, probably three rows at a time and replacing them with hardwoods again, replacing them with, you know, the natural uh, evergreen trees and then give more bedding to deer, give more bedding to the grouse. Uh, We have a pretty good fox population out there. Um, so yeah, really trying to just, again, make it better of get those man-made trees out of there that are, aren't worth anything. You can't even sell them for firewood because they're so thin. They're, they're going to burn so quickly and put some actual, um, natural wood back out there again. So,
0: so that's something I was wondering about, like in Randy's stuff where we were hunting, like all down in there, all those trees, they're all dying and you really don't see Mm -hmm. any good live young ones in there. And like a decade or so are those all going to be dead and tipped over because most of them are three quarters dead right now and this is just gonna be like yeah bear or what can i do about that
1: no i mean what you can do is you can do your due diligence and you can you can plant saplings um i know there there is some saplings on randy's but i think what what uh is hard especially in the ranching side of things is that cows if, if it's not established cows are going to trample and they're going to kill it right So when trees run through their natural life cycles and, you know, have the different um, wet years and dry years, and especially with the dry years that we've been having, you know, they, some of those bigger trees are dying. And with the cattle being out there, some of those saplings are getting trampled down and there's nothing to regrow up. So what that, what, what something that we could do is, you know, we could plant saplings, you know, in those bare spots and then just section them off, you know, whether it's, you know, putting, um, like two layers of like chicken wire or, um, hog panel around them. And, you know, just kind of being thoughtful of like, okay, you know, where could we plant like a cluster? And then also just, and then just just fence off that cluster and then just go down the line like that. So that's something that we could do, but yeah, the cattle make it really hard because where my dad is, you know, with a moment an oak tree falls, there's seven or eight that are going to replace it right away because they don't have that, uh, that cattle pressure pushing all of it down.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. when I was on there looking around, it just kind of made me think like, well, is this going to look like this in 10 years or what's this going to look like? Cause every tree looked like it was dead and three quarters fallen over.
1: Just to the East of those three evergreen trees that we talked about last episode, there's a tree that got caught in a windstorm and this is a huge tree, but you see it in this banana peeled in half. Mm-hmm. and how one side of it lays on one side of the creek and the other side of it lays on the other side.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Well, there's one right next to the evergreens too. That's the same thing. It was a giant one and it's it's tipped over and there's nothing there now.
1: Yeah, a windstorm came through and peels it right in half.
0: Well, do you have anything to add between Minnesota and South Dakota?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the best thing I can say is if you live in Minnesota, push... Do what you can to push to get the wolf season back. I, we have so many wolves. We have so many wolves, and
0: uh, you got too many people in Minneapolis yeah. controlling that.
1: I know, and to say, to say that the wolves don't do anything, is is, is pretty ignorant to say. I've, I don't know. I feel I think like I've seen just as many wolves this year as I have deer. Actually, no, that's a lie to say that. But I've seen definitely more wolves this year than I have ever before.
0: Yeah, I didn't like that being out there when we uh, when I was helping you build those blinds. In the middle of the night, I get up to let my dog outside and I could hear him howling all the way around us. That kind of creeped me out.
1: Yeah, I had uh, I messed around some public land, that same public land that uh, that big 14 probably got killed on. (laughs) Uh, I messed around out there and I have. uh, I went out one night and I was sitting and on the neighbor's field, it was a crop field. It was an alfalfa field uh not public can't shoot out there but it was within 100 yards of where i was sitting and i had a saw something come out and i was like oh what's that and i'm like looking i'm like looking i'm like gosh it's dark and here enough it was a black wolf a black timber wolf and it come and it takes a dump behind a tree and comes back out in the open and i started squirrel chirping at it you know trying to make a little kind of a distress call and it heard that, knew it was not an animal of hurt, and it booked it. It got out of there quick. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was that was a big dog, and um, yeah, that same actually set of public. Here's a little kind of quick funny story that we probably can end with. But you know, obviously, I'm a grown up. Everyone listening here is a grown up, but to say we're not afraid of the dark at times is pretty ignorant. Uh, I'm somebody wrong will I'm not afraid of the dark, but I am, and. I was walking out of this piece of public did not have a headlamp. I don't know why, but I hardly ever bring a headlamp. Whatever. I mean, I got to get better at it, but I uh, was walking out and again, I hunt with a saddle a lot. So I have these climbing steps and it's pretty far walk to get out of where I was hunting this public land. It's about a mile walk. I'm somebody where I don't mind walking. It's kind of, I don't know. I like to be speed on the woods, but to sit till dark, and to have a mile walk back in the dark can be pretty eerie. So I was on the main trail, though. I was walking back. And all of a sudden, I heard these footsteps behind me. And I was like, oh, no way. So I stopped. And it's like I heard, like, step, step, stop. And I was like, no. And you probably know that that's notoriously, mountain lions will do that with a trail. And they'll walk in the cadence of their prey. And then uh, the close distance They'll stop when the animal stops and then, you know, do their moving when the animal is moving, because it kind of hides their footsteps. And I'll instantly, I'm like, like, I'm sweating bullets, right? Take a couple more steps. I hear this thing start walking. I stop. takes one more step this time. I'm like, no way. So I knock my ball. I don't know where my phone is, right? So I don't have a light. My heart is going so fast. So I knock my bow, start walking, start hearing this thing walk. So just, this is what my mind decided to do. I'm don't You can tell me this probably wasn't the thing to do. We you know how a bull will start ripping the ground up, like, you know, to you know, kind of show a territorial thing. <laughs> I started ripping the ground up like a bull. And I, you know, start going, hey, hey, you know, start making noise. And as I'm doing this, all of a sudden, it's like the woods erupts around me. And I'm like, I, th- I think it's running at me. I'm like trying to find in the dark. Can't find it. Can't find it. But it's like it's still moving. I'm like, well, what is it? I'm like kicking the dirt. So I just stopped, like, expecting this thing to jump and attack me. Well, here, I talked about having those the saddle and the steps uh, a couple of minutes ago. My cable came off of one of my um, uh, steps, hooked a log. You're I was dragging the log. a log. And because I had so much weight on my back, I didn't realize I added weight with dragging this log. And these extra steps that I thought was hurting was the log rolling. <laughs> So here I'm dancing in the woods, kicking the Give ground, becoming i attack my mountain lion. But all it is is me kicking a, a log on a cable and making it a rustle the leaves. And uh, my heart was going so fast. And I so I licked my wounds, <laughs> unraveled the cable. And uh, I walked back, though, the rest of the way. I was probably had half a mile still. I walked back so scared. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, big woods for you. You love it, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that was a good one to end on. That was pretty funny. I definitely have had my scares at dark, too. It always ends up being nothing, but at the time, it's the end. It, you feel like the end is coming, fighting for your life. At
1: the, at the time, it's everything.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. We're going to be doing some more here in the near future. Um. Yeah. You got any closing words you'd like to give? Yeah. Get
1: out and hunt, you know, get with people that you like to hunt with and uh, listen to these podcasts. Right. I'm talking about big woods. I'm talking about plains deer. And that's my depiction of it. And really for you to define what your depiction is of how you're hunting is really for you to go out there and establish your own way to hunt. There's so many different ways to hunt whitetails outside of, you know, sitting in a stand or, building food plots there's spot and stock there's different people that cut tracks like with, with white tail you know i would say go out there experience whatever hunting is for you have fun with it you know put yourself around people that, you, that can support you and you can support them and enjoy it
0: perfect thanks for coming on and we'll talk to you again
1: cool thanks garrett